and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is half an hour where we will talk about science and who are we. Well, I am Stu and for the first time in a really long time it seems, I am joined by both Claire and Chris. Hi. Hello. Hello. Uh, Three is the magic number (laughs) or so I've been told. Claire, you have got a story for us this week. What are you going to be telling us all about? Well, you know, Stu, it is the 27th of February happens to be National Protein Day. I know it's been marked in your calendar all year. I've been I've been counting down the national days of things just to get to protein day. <laughs> exactly. Avoided all carbs today just for the just for the sake of it. So the 27th of February was National Protein Day and this is a thinly veiled excuse for me to talk about some new research that's come out about protein. Um, You know, I'm an omnivore, uh, but I like to make somewhat environmental ethical decisions. And there's some new research that looks at the environmental impact of two proteins that are supposed to be a bit more environmentally friendly, that is farmed Atlantic salmon and farmed chicken. So we are going to deep dive into this research this week for National Protein Day and look at the environmental impact of um, those food systems from all angles um, and the excellent work that has been done uh, by some researchers from Griffith University. Cool. Well, can't wait to uh, get our teeth into that one. <laughs> That's right. Get the knife and, and fork out, Stu. Oh. Depends what the protein is. Maybe I'll just drink it in a shake. I don't know. <laughs> Chris, what have you? what have you got for us this week? Well, something as tasty as protein? <laughs> no, I'm afraid not. I can, I can see your protein and raise you some fats, I think. Um, oh. Well, not necessarily in a good way. So this story is from the genre of, you know, things I did on my summer holidays or, you know, personal experience kind of things. Uh, you may laugh, but anyway, I've, I'm, I'm getting on a bit in, in age. And so I went to the doctor for a health check and turns out that I had some high blood pressure and so I thought I would talk about that because I've been reading a lot about that. And right. um, the tests that they do to det- determine whether you have risk of cardiovascular disease, including a thing called a CT calcium score. It's all like, you know, um, important stuff, uh, directly relevant it is. to me. It is. It's directly relevant to you and a yeah. lot of people as well. Yeah. All of us with a heart. Yeah. So while you're, Claire, while you're, you know, tempting people with various kind of tasty <laughs> foods, I'm going to be going, hey, hey, yeah, yeah, just be careful what you're shoving down that gullet right there. I think we balance out. Well, a balanced diet's a good thing. So please uh, stay tuned for the all new Lost in Science diet coming up. That's a magic number. Yes, it is. It's the magic number. Three. Somewhere in this hip-hop soul community. Was born three, they stubbing me, and that's the magic number. 
does it all mean? Difficult preaching is posthumous pleasure. Pleasure in preaching starts in the heart. Something that stimulates the music in a measure. Measure in the music, racing three parts. Casually see, but don't do like a soul. Cause seeing and doing are actions for monkeys. Doing hip hop hustle, no rock and roll. Unless your name's Brewster, cause Brewster's a punky. Parents let go, cause it's magic in the air. Criticizing rap, so you're out of order. Stop looking, listen to the phrase and fret the stairs. And don't get offended while Mace Dosi does your daughter. A dry camera roll system is now set. Fly around the store under Daisy Productions. It stands for the inner sound, y'all, in your Quebec. That the action's not a trip, but show me the function. Everybody wants to be a DJ. Everybody wants to be in the seat. But being speakers are the best. And you don't have to guess. Still, I so posse consists of three, and that's a magic number. This here piece of the pie is not dessert, but the cost that we dine And three out of every darn time, the effect is mmm when a daisy grows in your mind. Showing true position, this here piece is kissing the part of the pie that's missing, where that negative number fills up the casualty. Maybe you can subtract it, you can call it your lucky partner, maybe you can call it your One question I find myself asking every time I get to the supermarket is this. As an omnivore, albeit an omnivore, you know, who wants to make environmentally conscious and sustainable choices, what type of animal protein should I be eating more of and what should I be eating less of? Um, I mean, I think we've all got to the point now where we understand that red meat in its various forms, um, but especially beef, is not a good choice for the environment for a number of reasons, um, including land clearing, but also uh, all the burps and farts that uh, cattle do that contribute to global emissions of carbon dioxide and methane and all that sort of stuff. But where does that leave other farmed options? Things like chicken or um, everybody's favourite brain food, uh, farmed Atlantic salmon. So, um, you know, it is it is National Protein uh, Day or it has been National Protein Day recently. So we are going to chat about some of these proteins and how they impact the environment. And what are the factors that dictate how good or bad they are for the environment as well? Because there are varying factors and they have to be fairly geographically specific. Yeah, I was going to say, this is a very complex question because... Like I said, there are so many different things to consider yeah. and so many different points of view on these, on this issue. <laughs> there are a lot of different points of view. Um, uh, so, But there has been some new research that has come out from Griffith University and it's been um, headed up by Dr. Katie Quempel. And, you know, this wades through some of the points of view and some of the subjective opinions and applies, you know, science <laughs> and some mapping and some actual deep diving around this area and what the factors are that impact on the environment. So this paper was published in Current Biology and it's called Environmental Footprints of Farm Chicken and Salmon um, Bridge the Land and the Sea. Hmm. So that gives you a bit of an indication as to um, what it's all about. Um, so Katie and her team in this paper, they aim to work out the environmental footprint of meat chickens. So we're not talking about egg chickens here. And farm salmon production. What's better for the environment, taking into account all the aspects that go into production of these things um, and whether they're better than, say, beef and pork and your, your other sort of um, industries. 
there are varying ways to assess environmental impact and I was saying, you know, with beef cattle, you're talking about greenhouse gas emissions. That's what we think of when we think of environmental impact. But there are a lot of a lot of different ways to assess it. Um, and the way that Katie and her team are looking at the environmental impact of these foods is by considering the following four factors. So it's greenhouse gas emissions mm-hmm. straight up. That's the first one. The next one is nutrient pollution. So the pollution that goes along with everything to do with producing this meat from the poop to the processing and all that sort of stuff. Then the third one is how much land or sea disturbance um, needs to take place to grow these proteins, uh, such as, you know, space needed for infrastructure uh, and, you know, pens and all the rest, as it not like biro pens, but pens for the animals. And then the fourth one is how much fresh water each of them uses. Now, the combination of these four pressures is what's known as the cumulative environmental pressure. And by mapping these pressures, um, the researchers can see what the environmental footprint looks like across the land and the sea all over the world. So they can map across the globe and look at each of these pressures within the chicken within the chicken production system or within the salmon production system. Interestingly, one thing this research has highlighted was that for both chicken and salmon, um, their environmental footprints cover both land and sea. I guess that was, you know, um, in the title. But can you guess why this might be? Why is the environmental impact of something like salmon both on the land and the sea and conversely with chicken as well? I would guess that uh, salmon's got to be fed with something. Yeah. And presumably we grow something on the land that gets fed to the salmon. Yeah. Uh, and and I guess from the chicken side of things, it's probably to do with runoff or, or some sort of pollution from the effluent from, from chicken growing areas. Uh, into waterways would be my guess. Exactly right, Stuart. It's it's got to do with the fact that the salmon and the chicken, like you say, have to be fed with something and what the source of that feed is. So both for chicken and salmon, they're typically fed on legumes and grains, um, such as soybean and wheat. Um, but interestingly, they're also uh, fed with fish meal and oil from herrings, anchovies and sardines. So both of these production systems um, use both feed from the land and also from the sea. So chickens are eating uh, herring. <laughs> Which... Chicken, chickens are getting their omega-3s from, yeah. from the herring oil. Yeah. yeah. Right. Which is a bit of a surprise to me. I find that pretty fascinating. Um, across the world, more than 520,000 tonnes of fish meal and fish oil is used to feed chickens and 2.3 million tonnes of crops um, are used to feed salmon. So so the researchers matched, like they've mapped these cumulative pressures across the world and they found that farmed chicken and salmon have huge environmental footprints, but the vast majority, so 95%, of this environmental impact is concentrated in just 5% of the world. So you've got really big chicken producers um, that have, as the researchers call them, chicken footprints, and they're the US, China, and Brazil. And then for salmon, the big um, big salmon footprint is Norway, Chile, and the United Kingdom. And, they, and um, for chicken, 
I think we are in the top tier for, well, I mean, we produce a lot of chicken, but we're also in the top tier for environmental efficiency at our farm sites. And for salmon, um, we have good environmental efficiency, but as I'll talk about later, there is room for improvement. So um, the questions the researchers have answered, chicken and salmon, well, chicken might actually be just better for the environment compared with salmon chicken has a lower environmental efficiency across all the four categories um, except for freshwater use which they explain um, because chickens use a lot of fresh water because chickens have a shorter lifespan than than fish so you actually are producing a lot more chickens than you are um, than you are Atlantic salmon. So your production is um, more concentrated and using a lot more water. And then salmon also has a higher greenhouse gas emissions due to um, salmon waste being in the form of nitrous oxide. So there you go. So they have more greenhouse gas emissions than chickens do. Salmon also has a higher disturbance rate, um, which can be traced back to the food that they're given so the fish meal and the fish oil production from um that fisheries use for their feed is really large so they actually have a higher disturbance rate than than chickens do so um it seems like the biggest take-home message for the research is when they are assessing when you're assessing environmental impact you need to really think about what animals are fed this has got the biggest impact and in this study the the feed actually accounts for 78% of the environmental pressure for chickens and 67 for salmon. So that's the vast majority of um of the environmental impact for both of these things. It's it's it actually comes from the feed and where the feed's coming from um and and the ingredients that are going into that feed. So the researchers suggest that if we really want to make an impact and actually bring um bring the environmental impact down um, and mitigate some of these effects, then we need to start thinking of what, what the ingredients are that we're adding to the feed of chickens and salmon. So maybe there's a new type of ingredient out there that isn't, you know, isn't anchovies or herring, something like a bacteria or an insect or a microalgae or something that's going to be able to grow on, on fewer resources and have fewer, um, fewer environmental impacts um, that we can potentially replace. I do wonder if the, because um, I know uh, animal feed when they're fed grain and, and legumes and that sort of thing, that they're not actually human grade quality food. I wonder if that's the same with what gets fed from you know from the herrings and the and the wastes of maybe mm. other other fishing industries that may not actually be up to the standard that we could give to humans. So we've got to do something with it. And I guess that's what they went. Well, I'll just feed it to the chooks or whatever. You know? Yeah, yeah. But that also suggests you know there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of bycatch in fishing industries as well. So you know the standards of fishing industries around the world are. Um, are variable so um, you know there, there may be some ethical considerations with that as well so if we just took out the fish and added you know added some sort of replacement that's not even you know that's that's not going to have an environmental as much of an environmental impact something like 
um, mealworms, we might be we might be laughing. So there you go for your next dinner option. Next time you're looking to buy a protein, um, chicken might be a slightly better option than Atlantic salmon. Um, but if you really want to reduce your impact, um, I would say for this National Protein Week, reach for the for the plant-based protein. <laughs> or for the mealworms. Or for the mealworms. Make a meal out of mealworms for protein day. In the history of science, novel and innovative concepts occasionally arise from sudden left-field inspiration. Nothing shocks me. I'm a scientist. But I'd rather be remembered for my own small contributions to science. As a scientist, I don't want to prejudice my experiment. I'll let you know in the morning. I am a scientist! I think they're scientists. I bring scientists. You bring a rock star. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Lost in Science. Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. And as I said in the introduction, I had a bit of a, I guess, like health scare perhaps, or, you know, health wake up call recently when I went for a, um, a health check and found that my blood pressure was a bit higher than it ought to be. Um, I can't tell you exactly how high, um, <laughs> unfortunately, because, uh, look, they didn't want to, I guess, tell me the exact numbers necessarily. Oh. Yeah, look, you, you weren't told how high. You were just given a range, were you? Well, no, I was. I was given the indication that it was too high. So the okay. So the issue is, um, blood pressure is affected by a lot of things, obviously. Um, and when you get stressed, that raises your blood pressure. Uh-huh. Um, and that's what you can happen uh, when you're actually getting your blood pressure taken, which is white coat right. syndrome. They call when you're having the doctor test your blood pressure. So they tried not to get me to look at the actual numbers with the attempt to, like, not stress me out too much. <laughs> that's that's a worry, though. It's like your blood pressure's so high we can't tell you what your blood pressure is. Well, no. I is, mean... that less, is that less stressful? <laughs> well, look, so to get an accurate answer, the, um, the best way to do it is to have, a like, a 24-hour blood pressure monitor device called a halter monitor, which I did that, and I did look. I did sneak peeks at it and then try, you know, get it down and stuff. But, uh, yeah, look, it was definitely too high. Let's put it that way. Um and of course, this is a bad thing. Um, high blood pressure is a risk for cardiovascular disease, which is things like heart disease and stroke. Um, so you don't want high blood pressure. Um, now, the way it causes these uh, these things, um, there's many kind of effects that it has. It is kind of generally bad for your system. Um, your body's not designed to have too high a blood pressure. That's why it has like you know mechanisms to try and keep it at a at an appropriate level. Um, but like the main thing that it's involved in is the hardening of arteries, which you've probably heard of, the um, atherosclerosis, as it's known. Mm. Now, for those who don't know how that works, essentially what happens is that um, you get plaques build up within the walls of the arteries. Um, essentially, it is cholesterol 
seems to kick it off. Um, is one of the main things that kicks it off. Um, cholesterol then gets into the artery walls. That's an irritant, and so the immune system attacks. You get um, the white blood cells going in. Uh, they turn into macrophages, which try to eat up the cholesterol, and then they die, and they become another source of, um, I guess, infection as well. And eventually, you get this plaque building up. So yeah, the blood pressure wall kind of gets thicker um and it narrows the artery but what happens then is that um if you've got high blood pressure then that weakens the the artery wall and it can tear and i clot so sorry um the plaque can break out of its of where ah. it formed and then that causes your blood to start clotting to i guess protect itself from this this intrusion going into the bloodstream Oh, and that's and and that's a stroke. Well, that's so that can be many things. So, uh, if it's in small blood vessels in the heart, that can cause ischemic heart disease, which basically is kind of you know sort of weakens the heart. Um, if it's in a major artery, it can cause a myocardial infarction, which also known as a heart attack. Mm. Um, if it happens in a brain artery, yes, that can be a stroke, or if um. Pardon me. A clock, the clock can actually break off, and then travel to the brain and get lodged in a blood vessel in the brain, which can also cause a stroke. And it is again high blood pressure that makes the clot more likely to break off from where it forms. Right. So it's bad news all around, mm, pretty much. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. So that was uh, that was um, not good news for me. Um, and of course, you do all the other blood tests and things. Turns out my cholesterol was a bit on the high side as well. Um, but it wasn't clear what my actual risk was of cardiovascular disease. So I was sent for a thing called uh, a CT calcium scan. Oh, Which okay. I didn't know much about. Um, no, never heard of it. So essentially, uh, as I said, these plaques form within the walls of the, of the blood vessels. Uh, when the plaques, I guess, mature, when, they get, when they've been there a long time, when they get older, uh, they calcify. And so, you know, the calcium in the, in the plaque or around the plaque. And so this, what they do, can do then is doing a CT scan that essentially detects this calcified plaque um, that is at more risk of causing a, uh, a problem. So it can pick up the, the calcified parts of your, of your blood stream or your blood vessels? Well, this is a, a, this is a particularly a, a heart scan. So they do a scan of the chest. Um, so they're looking okay. at the blood vessels in the heart. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and essentially, so it's it's uh, it's seen, I think, as a way of determining what your actual risk is of heart disease. Um, and the good news for me was that my score came back zero. They couldn't detect any plaques, calcified plaques. Ah, oh, wonderful. That's the sort of score that you want. Look, it is. It is. Presumably, Chris, the longer you have high blood pressure and high cholesterol, the, the, the greater the risk of building up these plaques and having a higher risk. So that, I guess they need to know how long you've been in that state with the high blood pressure and the high cholesterol. And you can't really just ask that question, can you? No, not really. Um, and these pl the plaques themselves uh, can form very early as well. They can form in, start forming in childhood too. Um, and it's only right. really when they get too big and, again, that the, the artery walls weaken that they are going to cause a serious problem. 
Um, uh, look, the CT scan, I should say, it also is not necessarily as accurate in younger people as well. Um, so, yeah, you're right. The longer it's been there, the more likely it is to be calcified. It's possible that uh, for younger people, you can have fairly large plaques that haven't calcified yet, um, but are still big enough to form a blockage in a blood vessel. So, uh, yeah, there have been studies saying that it's less accurate in younger people. Um, yeah, so, but it was a good result for me. Um, look, what was interesting about this, though, is that this is, it is an expensive test. It's not currently subsidised by Medicare. Um, I guess it's on the, the newish side of, of technology, um, or at least the government believes it's on the newish side of technology, and they've had some discussions about this for a while, though. Um, and it looks quite interesting. It is recommended by, you know, groups like the, the Cardiac Society of Australia and New Zealand and the Heart Foundation um, for people who are at sort of moderate risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, but I guess, yeah, the, the debate is over whether, whether it is going to make um, enough of a difference to the outcome. So, for instance, it's not recommended for people that who are really at high risk um, because you're probably still going to give them the same medication anyway, regardless of right. what their, their score is. Um, and it's not recommended as a screening thing for people at low risk because, uh, for, for most people at low risk, um, because, again, yeah, it's, it's probably not likely to show up anything and um, giving multiple CT scans has a radiation risk as well. Risk. Mm. The amount I couldn't get a definite answer from, I saw some different opinions on in the reference of looking at it, somewhere between um, 50 or 10 chest x-rays each time is the equivalent of it. But it's not something you want to be doing kind of regularly just as a random thing. I don't know. It's, like I said, it's interesting that these, these are major heart sort of societies are recommending it and yet the government is not subsidising it. Maybe that will change in the future. Who knows? Um, for me, though, like I said, it was a pretty good result. Um, it meant I did not need to take extra cholesterol medication, um, but I still have to take um, blood pressure medication for the time being, although my doctor has me working on the usual things you're told to reduce your your blood pressure. And let's be clear also, by the way, this, um, this CT scan, like I said, is looking at your heart. It's not looking at other blood vessels like in the brain, that sort of thing. Um, High blood pressure can also cause other problems. Um, it can cause blood vessels to burst in the brain, like an aneurysm often will, will burst due to, say, high blood pressure or something like that. So it's not the only factor that high blood pressure is a, is a risk factor for. But yeah, like I said, I've been given some recommendations, typical things, you know, um, have to do more exercise because, you know, you increase your cardiac fitness, your blood pressure goes down, I've got to cut out alcohol, I've got to lose a bit of weight. Um, cut out sugars and saturated fat, um, reduce salt, uh, which is something that I think I could probably do better on. Um, <laughs> I don't add salt to things, but um, I realise that anything that's basically processed, you have to really mm. look at the label and see what's in it. And probably any kind of um, delivery or takeaway food is probably going to have high levels of salt because they put that in to make it tasty. So. Yeah, that's a... yeah, I mean, salt is tasty. Salt and vinegar chips aren't the best chips, you know. There's a nothing. reason for that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, what else is there? I, I don't smoke, but um, if I did, like smoking is, of course, one of the, the big kind of risk factors for cardiovascular disease. Um, but yeah, 
look, uh, maybe I'll report back in a few months and let you know how I'm going, uh, whether I've managed to, to improve the health. But I thought, look, it was just worth talking about how this all works and um, what the what the options are out there, really, um, so that other people can be informed. And um, obviously, yeah, make a time for a health check, see your doctor. It's not hard to, it is not hard to measure your blood pressure. And if you don't get freaked out when they're wrapping the sphygmomanometer cuff around your arm, then you'll hopefully get an accurate reading. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can send cheap tweets to us at lostinscience1 on Twitter, or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.